0: really like being organized. I love the moment in spring when the weather has finally settled into a clear pattern and I can spend the afternoon one Saturday switching out my closet, putting the now off-season wool blazers in their plastic bins, hanging up the linen jackets and lightweight pants which I had all but forgotten through the months of turtlenecks. Of course this spring the weather has been so up and down I'm not sure what I should be wearing on any given day. Not to mention that my figure these days is not conducive to my regular wardrobe. (laughs) But still, the springtime brings with it a promise of organization, of getting things in their right place. So maybe it is fitting that May 1st is International Workers' Day, not a holiday that is observed in America that much anymore, but one that is based on the history of organized people, organized workers also actually on anarchists and communists, which unfortunately are sometimes considered synonymous with organized labor, although they are not. I want to talk to you today about another kind of organizing, one that shares roots with the labor movement, but that couldn't be further from anarchy. I'm talking about community organizing, a term many people in America first heard when Barack Obama was running for president but which has been part of our national landscape for more than 50 years. The kind of community organizing we're talking about today is based in communities of faith. Labor unions, as you know, are a way of organizing people around where they work. In 1940, an organizer named Saul Alinsky was working in Chicago, focusing in the Meatpackers neighborhoods, the industrial areas of Chicago. Labor unions were already there, but Alinsky wanted to find a way to organize even more people, people who lived in the area, people who were invested in the future of the neighborhood. He started the Industrial Areas Foundation, which is still the name of the national group. Alinsky believed that people had the power to make change if they organized themselves well, and he was right. He met with success in Chicago and then again in Rochester, New York, where he created an organization to battle racist hiring practices at Eastman Kodak. Alinsky died suddenly in the early 1970s, and then Ed Chambers took over. Chambers had been a seminarian training for the Catholic priesthood, but unfortunately he asked too many questions. Don't you kind of like him already? Instead, he went into organizing, trained by Dorothy Day and other radical Catholics. Chambers saw the same thing that Alinsky had, the power of people who came together to organize. And he took the Industrial Areas Foundation in even bigger directions, standardizing their national training for organizers, starting affiliate organizations or chapters, and broadening the kinds of people who were involved in the organizing with a big focus on communities of faith, churches, synagogues, and mosques, as well as secular neighborhood and citizen rights organizations. Chambers wrote a book about this, which I recommend to you, Roots for Radicals, Organizing for Power, Action, and Justice. In it, he talks about the world as it is and the world as it should be, and the tension between the two. If we sink just into the world as it is, we've become cynical, giving up our hope to change things. If we live only in the world as it should be, we're pie in the sky, as Chambers would say, imagining that the injustice we see around us will change if only enough people realize it's not fair. Chambers thinks we need to live in the tension, work and organize in the tension, so that ultimately we have a chance of seeing at least parts of the world Change from the as it is to the as it should be. Chambers lines up in his book four specific tensions between those worlds. And I want to share them with you because they are really the core principles in community organizing. First, self-interest versus self-sacrifice. Lots of religions stress self-sacrifice, putting other people before ourselves. But the reality is that we all have self-interest. We all want certain things to happen because they are good for us. There's a reality of, that's a reality of the world as it is. And Chambers thinks we should use that reality to create justice. Self-interest is about, as Chambers puts it, self-preservation, self-recognition, self-determination, and self-respect. I think that honoring and understanding self-interest is actually a principle that connects deeply with ethical culture. We talk a lot about affirming the inherent worth of every person, but what we sometimes don't get to is how we do that. Ethical culture teaches us that each person has not just worth, but a unique potential, that each person is special in some particular way, has something in particular to contribute to the world, and that our job as a human community is to make sure that each person is able to make their contribution. To me, that doesn't sound like asking everyone to put other people's needs first. It sounds much more like caring about other people's needs and also caring about our own. It sounds like trying to find that tension between self-sacrifice and self-interest, the place where we feel empowered to say what we most want and where we really try to listen to what another wants, what their unique contribution can be. The next tension is between power and love. Now, a lot of progressives get kind of antsy talking about power. We imagine, I think, the power hungry, the power corrupted, the mwahaha kind of power, you know. Love is much more friendly. But again, our own history tells us that power is important. Felix Adler, the founder of Ethical Culture, did incredible work on child labor laws in America, as well as working on conditions in tenements and in the poorest neighborhoods in New York City. He may have spoken about the importance of love, but he also organized for power. He brought together people who wanted change, and he led them to victory. Power, as defined by the Industrial Areas Foundation, is just organized people and organized money. Power is neutral. It can sure as heck be used for bad things, but it can also be used to create justice. One way to think about the kind of power that we we might want to see used is that it's not power over, that's the mwahaha kind, but power with, power of people working together in solidarity with each other. Chambers doesn't want to lose the importance of love, though, Loving one's neighbor, Chambers writes, is about respecting your neighbor's self-interest and your own self-interest. Again, a reflection of our ethical culture idea of bringing out the unique in other people and allowing the unique to flourish in ourselves. Chambers even quotes Immanuel Kant, who was an inspiration for ethical culture's founding idea, saying, as the philosopher Kant did, that one should never treat a human being only as a means to some ends. Chambers goes on, quote, love means sustaining relationships in which the interdependence of one's own and others' interests is recognized and respected. This is love understood as a mutual reciprocal process of give and take. Okay, so self-interest and self-sacrifice, power and love. The third tension Chambers talks about is between change and unity, This can be, I think, another toughie. We sometimes want to imagine that the world should just be able to get along, that we should all be able to reach a state of peace. And that may be true in the world as it should be. But in the world as it is, we aren't there. You actually might have noticed that. And one of the key principles of community organizing is that getting to even a moment of unity will require a fair amount of tension along the way. Community organizers aren't afraid of creating that tension in just the right amount to lead toward lasting change. Again, this is about respecting differences, not glossing over them and pretending we're the same. Chambers ties this to the idea of civility, a word related in its root to that of citizen. He writes, treating someone civilly doesn't mean being polite. It means treating her or him as a fellow citizen as someone whose uniqueness must be respected and included, someone with whom one must converse, debate, seek compromise, and collaborate. End quote. It's through that kind of interaction, that civil work for change, that we do achieve moments of legitimate unity. They're just moments, though. Then we go back to realizing and acknowledging our differences. And finally, the fourth tension, imagination and hope. This one is a little harder to grasp, I think. Chambers' idea, basically, is that imagination comes from what we know, what we can imagine because of our memories, because of the realities we've already experienced, while hope exists in a different realm. It's what we cannot yet imagine, but what we yearn to see. We have been talking a lot about hope here over the last couple of Sundays, about the importance of hope in a religious community. Chambers would say that hope must be married to imagination, that we can't just hope wildly or without reason, but we must hope in a way that is grounded in reality. Chambers talks about religious hope, which is based on the idea that there is something larger, even if it is just the movement of humanity working together that gives us cause to believe in possibility and about democratic hope, which is based on the idea that a citizenry united can accomplish greatness. Community organizing calls on both those ideas of hope and bases them also in action. So what does that action look like beyond the theory on the ground? What do community organizers, and more specifically, the Industrial Areas Foundation, really do? People often want that answer to be issues based. They work on affordable housing, for instance, or they advocate for services to those battling poverty, or they try to get rec centers in neighborhoods where teens need them. And the Industrial Areas Foundation does do all of that. In fact, the local affiliate, the Washington Interfaith Network, does all of that, has done it over the past few years, and is doing it now. But not because it believes in those issues particularly. It has done that work because that's what it has heard is needed when it listens to its people, when it listens to the people of the neighborhoods and the churches and the citizens' associations. I wanna turn now to the basic tool of community organizing, the core way that organizations like the Washington Interfaith Network figure out what to work on next. It's another reason that I think this work resonates with ethical culture, with this congregation. Because here's the tool. They talk. Specifically, they have what are called relational meetings. These meetings are short, about 35 minutes, and they're not for chit chat or pleasantries or being polite. They're for finding out about another person. In a relational meeting, you might ask, what are you passionate about? What are you angry about? What in your own history makes you want to see and create change in the world? The meetings are about getting to know another person, to figure out what their unique contribution might be. Michael Gekin, an industrial areas foundation organizer who wrote the book Going Public, said this, when you develop the habit of doing individual meetings, you stop thinking of people as the poor or the rich or the establishment or even the enemy. You don't just size up another person to see if you can make a sale whether the commodity is the church, the doctrine, the political candidate, or the citizen's organization. You sit and listen. You probe and challenge. Honestly, these kinds of meetings are a clergy person's dream. I love it when my day includes relational meetings because I know that they're going to give me a chance to get to know someone in a way that isn't possible during coffee hour or even a potluck. Some of you have been invited to have relational meetings with me or with WES members on the community organizing team here. I hope many more of you can. It's a wonderful way to create real bonds, to know each other in a real sense. It is also a wonderful way to create action because out of those relational meetings, out of the information about what people are passionate about and angry about, what they want to change, out of that comes the agenda for work. The Washington Interfaith Network has had a priority recently of working on rec centers for youth, particularly in our ward, but also east of the river. That's because they held meetings with people in those neighborhoods, parents and teens, and they heard people saying that what made them angry was that their neighborhood had a perfectly fine building for a rec center, but that no one staffed it, so it was closed six days a week. In one neighborhood, because the rec center was closed, Kids that wanted to hang out there could actually be detained and arrested for loitering. Loitering at their rec center. Now, in the world as it should be, that's called hanging out in the place that the city built for you to hang out in. So the Washington Interfaith Network decided that enough people were angry and enough people were hopeful and started to organize those people to create change, to bring us from the world as it is, where you're arrested for loitering outside your rec center, to the world as it should be, one rec center at a time. That doesn't mean that rec centers are suddenly the issue for the Washington Interfaith Network. Maybe next year no one will be passionate about rec centers at all, because the need for affordable housing will suddenly become so pressing. The idea is not about creating an agenda for all time, but creating an agenda that rises up out of the people's concerns. The people's passions and worries. Our theme this month that we introduced with our story is vocation. In some ways relational meetings are a way of helping people to find their own vocations, to learn what they are passionate about, what calls to them. Frederick Buechner, the Presbyterian minister, described vocation as being where your deep love meets the world's deep hunger. Relational meetings and the work of connecting those meetings to each other is like building a database of what people are passionate about and what the world needs. Out of that comes the work. And the work looks like a lot of different things. It looks like ward meetings where people who live or work or meet in certain neighborhoods come to talk about what's needed most and make plans for how to get it. It looks like citywide actions where the entire organization comes together to rally around ideas that have bubbled up from relational meetings and from ward meetings, ideas like a DC budget that doesn't cut funding for supportive housing or homeless services. At those citywide actions, council members and the mayor are invited after having had their own relational meetings with teams of Washington Interfaith Network members, and they're asked to make their commitments to those same priorities. There is nothing quite like the buzz of a packed Baptist church filled with black folks and white folks from every ward in the city and the whole place suddenly going so quiet you could hear a pin drop while one organizer asks the mayor, So, Mr. Mayor, can you commit to continuing funding for rec centers in Ward 4? Because getting to that moment came from the relationships of all the people in the room, all their passion and anger and hope. Which brings me to another question. Who is in that room, exactly? The kind of organizing we're talking about is often called broad-based, bringing in as many different kinds of people as possible. As Chambers writes in his book, within our organization, citizens whose ancestors were born in the United States, Europe, Africa, Latin America, Asia, the Middle East, and North America collaborate as equal partners in the pursuit of justice and opportunity for all faiths, cultures, and classes. Within our organizations, Jews, Christians, Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists join together to seek the well-being of their cities. Within our organizations, people who believe in God, democracy, or both, pursue matters of mutual interest. Well, that sounds great. But, of course, each individual organization, each city's affiliate, has its own culture and tone. When folks from West started meeting with the Washington Interfaith Network, the tone there looked a whole lot like a big Christian revival. Gospel music and Bible verses and all. After attending citywide actions, we'd have to have two debriefings as a team. One about what we had seen accomplished politically, and then another one about our own personal trauma at all that Jesus. (laughs) I will be honest, it didn't seem like there would be room for us. But relational meetings work not just to create change in the city, but to create change in the organization, too. We have been working at this for more than two years, showing up to ward meetings and citywide actions, meeting with staff organizers and with leaders from other congregations, meeting with rabbis from synagogues who weren't sure they'd ever want to be involved in that Christian thing, saying out loud who we are and what we believe over and over again. And we are seeing change. In the fall, I was asked to deliver the closing prayer at one of those citywide actions. Actually, it was the action I mentioned, the one in the Baptist church with lots of quiet people waiting to hear about rec centers. Except they changed the name to Closing Meditation for me. And they asked me if I would use as much intentionally interfaith language as I could muster. I pulled out all the stops. I think I mentioned God, Allah, Jehovah, and the spirit of life and love that we humans create together. Possibly I threw in a phrase or two of Spanish just to round it out. They got interfaith that evening and they are learning. We are hearing the organizers talk about congregations, not churches. We are hearing the ministers begin their prayers with an acknowledgement of their own tradition, not an assumption that we all share it. And this summer, Temple Sinai, one of DC's big synagogues over on Military Road, will engage in a campaign of their own of relational meetings as they share their passions. One of the rabbis there has given me permission to share with you that they expect to join the Washington Interfaith Network this fall. Part of Wes's vocation right now I strongly believe is to help get the Washington Interfaith Network even more interfaith and we are doing it. Wes will have a chance to really think about that vocation and about our broader vocation, about who we want to be in DC, how we want to serve our neighborhood and our city at our spring membership meeting on May 22nd. There, the board will invite the membership to vote on whether or not to join WIN as an official member. We'll talk a lot more and you'll get information in writing beforehand about what that would mean in terms of time and money and what opportunities it would afford us too. Especially about how it can pull in those of you who don't have time for endless meetings, but might have time to show up once a year at city council chambers and rally for supportive housing. I believe that this is a significant opportunity for Wes, one that resonates with our own ethical culture principles, with our desire to do more deed, more work in the world, with our hope to engage in multiracial, multicultural relationships and with our hope to be known in the religious and secular landscape of the district, to be identified as a congregation that cares about justice and that puts our money and our feet where our mouths are. Those are all big reasons to engage in this work. I also want to tell you a little reason. I want to tell you why I engage in this. Because this work is not just about changing city politics or changing neighborhoods or even changing rec centers. It is also about changing ourselves. I first got involved in community organizing with the Washington Interfaith Network when I was a member at All Souls down the street. I was fresh out of college, full of plenty of book learning but not a lot of experience. Suddenly, I was at meetings with other All Souls folks and with members of Sagrado Corazon or Sacred Heart, the Catholic Church up the street from All Souls. We were working on supporting tenants' associations to change the deplorable conditions in apartment buildings, buildings that sat right next to fancy new condos with granite countertops. But we were also working to get to know each other. One person I met was Amanda de Leon. Perhaps about 60, she was a leader with sacred heart and a resident in one of those buildings. People started calling us Big Amanda and Little Amanda. I was Little Amanda, although, as I recall, Amanda de Leon was actually a couple of inches shorter. But she was much bigger. Much bigger when she stood up in front of the city council and demanded that the heat in her apartment work. Much bigger when she organized 50 people to go door-to-door asking residents how many rats they had seen that day. Much bigger when she led a prayer or a song on the bus heading down to Southeast D.C. for a citywide action that would include our residents' rights issue, as well as Ward 8's hope for regular trash pickup. Without community organizing, I might have passed Big Amanda on the street every day and not noticed her not known who she had the potential to be, who she was. By engaging with her, I was able to realize both the privilege of all the education I'd received and just how far that education took me, which was not as far as Big Amanda. It was a moment of realization for me, a moment of transformation. I learned to stand in solidarity, to listen, to sing along on the bus. As much as I love rec centers, that moment is why I organize. Call it my own self-interest. I want transformation for myself as much as for the city. I want transformation for big Amanda too, and I want to become more like her someday. Organized people, organized money, organized passion, and anger, and hope. That is what I call a good spring cleaning.